Okay, if you have a, a Bible with you tonight, why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to be reading from verses 13. Matthew chapter 16. <clears throat> when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, I don't know if you've ever read this and thought, what a strange question. These individuals have been with Jesus for quite a substantial period of time. You would have thought that any notion that he was anything other than the Messiah would have become apparent, but Jesus is testing. He's checking, if you like, whether or not his intentionality and his mission is having an effect on the way people see him and the way they connect with God. And so here are his answers, the answers he receives. Verse 14, they replied, some say you're John the Baptist. Now, if I were Jesus at this point, I probably would have put some kind of guard in place for my heart because having watched Jesus heal the sick, engage with compassion with the lost and the broken, watched him move in power and authority, still people seem to misunderstand who he truly was. And what's really unhelpful about this phrase is that John the Baptist, just three months earlier to this particular story, was beheaded in a very public and profound way. So things are not looking good. Can you imagine giving your life to see the purposes of God and people completely misunderstanding who you truly are? But it gets worse, or better, depending on what your sense of humor is like. Others say, Elijah. Now, if John the Baptist was hard enough to stomach, Elijah was somebody that had died hundreds of years prior to this. And of course, we know that what they're really referring to is simply this, that you're moving with the same level of authority spiritually that is recorded in the life of Elijah. More miracles have taken place through you, Jesus, that have ever taken place through anybody else. We recognize there's something of the spirit of Elijah on your life. In fact, the truth is there was something of the spirit of God on Elijah's life. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now let's pause for a moment and consider this moment. You've given up your heavenly position. You've come to earth with a mission from the Father to bring life and hope and joy and salvation to mankind. You've gathered for yourself a whole bunch of very ordinary people and called them to be with you to explore an extraordinary reality. And that is the kingdom of God has turned up. The Messiah, the promised one has turned up in our world and he has come with a message of hope and salvation for the people of Israel. If you were doing a PR job on this, it would look like Jesus had not really accomplished what he had set out to do. In spite of the fact that there'd been miracles and signs and wonders, there were still a number of people who did not understand who he was, who did not fully embrace who he truly had come to be. And many people still didn't get the reality of what was happening in and through Jesus's life. It could be slightly disheartening. To be likened to John the Baptist when there was a clear evidence that John the Baptist had been killed is really a real large misunderstanding. 
of who Jesus was and why he was here. But Jesus, in spite of the fact that those around him on the fringes of his life did not understand him, presses the question a little bit closer to home. And here's what he says in verse 15. But what about you, Jesus asks? Who do you say I am? Now, can I pause for a moment and just allow that thought to become something of a reality to you? What if Jesus was here tonight and his goal was to hear from you what you believe to be true about him? What kind of response would you be able to give in a moment like this? As Jesus steps beyond that which the crowd understands to be true and makes it very personal to you and me, asking us the very same question he asked his disciples, who do you say I am? In other words, what have you discovered about me? What have you recognized to be true about who I am and how I relate to you? And I think it's important to pause and ask ourselves this question because I believe what we believe about Jesus is simply the most important thing we can ever discover this side of heaven. What you believe about Jesus will shape the way you live your life. It will direct what you do and it will cause you to understand what you should not do. What you believe about Jesus is what God has revealed to you by the power of his spirit here on earth and he has given you that revelation to keep you close to the heart of God and indeed absolutely fulfilling the plan and the purpose of God. It's not enough for us to have our ideology about Jesus shaped by the culture around us. You see, you can be in church and all kinds of people can say to you, Jesus is like this or Jesus is like that. No, 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 Jesus is like this, Simon. Oh no, Jesus is like this. Actually, that culture and that context will do everything in its power to shape your understanding of Jesus. But actually, fundamentally, that will not keep you in relationship with God. Who people say Jesus is, is not the same as you knowing who Jesus truly is for yourself. So let me pose the question to you again. Who do you say that Jesus is? Was he just some religious figure that was sent to the earth to start a revolution? Well, maybe. And you need to make up your mind as to whether or not that is or isn't true. Was he just a good doer who turned up in humanity to try and make a difference? Well, goodness knows there's enough of them in this world. And with all the effort of people trying to change the world, there doesn't seem to be much evidence that we truly can. Or was Jesus the Son of God? Was he God's messenger to a broken people that there was hope because God had a plan that had always been in place for salvation? Was Jesus a miracle worker or a prophet? Was he a teacher or a pastor? Who do you say Jesus is? Now, some say that he was a liar, that the things he said about himself simply weren't true. But if that is the evidence that we have here or the conclusion that we arrive, then I don't know many people who would die for the sake of somebody who was delusional. And when you look across the spectrum of those who gave their lives willingly because they had convictions about the reality of Jesus, it would appear to me that there was much more than just somebody who fabricated a story. People were utterly convinced that he was who he said he was, and he turned up in this world to do what he promised he would do. Others say he was a lunatic, that he had these wild notions, maybe he was some kind of mentally ill individual who believed in all kinds of glorious thoughts considering himself and the world. But actually, when you look at the evidence of what that produced in people's lives, you can clearly see quite categorically 
that if Jesus had any form of mental illness, it was simply this, that he was heavenly minded. That he saw the world from a very different perspective. Because every environment he stood in, chaos did not prevail, but order came and began to form in people's hearts. So he was, in my opinion, not a liar and certainly not a lunatic. And so the only possible option that's left to us to consider is, was he the Lord? Was he the Lord God Almighty, the Son of the Most High God, who had turned up in our world to make sure that people had the invitation the Father always intended them to have, and that is to come, have their sins forgiven, and come back into relationship with God. I've been around church for 34 years now, and if I was to do a straw poll on what people thought about Jesus, I would find that people would shout out all kinds of interesting things. If we were to press the button and ask the question a bit closer to home, what do you believe about Jesus? There will be a diversity of responses that come from a gathering of people like this. Some will say, I believe he is my savior, Simon. For my sins have been forgiven and I have a peace with God. And we'd all shout, hallelujah. Unless you were asleep like you lot and you just there uh, looking at me. We would all shout, hallelujah, that's good news. Is that not good news? Now, even if it may not be the reality for you, is it not good news that somebody knows that their sins are forgiven and they have peace with God? Amen? Hallelujah. Other people would shout if we asked the question, who do you say Jesus is? They'd say, oh no, Simon, he is a savior, but he is the healer of my soul. If only you understood, Simon, how deeply wounded I was and how incredible it is that Jesus could come and take everything that had been trashed by life and turn it into something that's worthy of treasure. If only you knew, Simon, how he searched out the very depths of my soul and called me back to be the person I was intended to be before all of the damage was done and all of the anarchy and all of the brokenness happened. And we would say, we are really blessed that you know him as your healer. And we say, hallelujah and praise the Lord, unless of course we were as asleep as the first time round, and then we would not even pay attention to it. So he can be savior for some and he can be healer for others. And then there's the others of us. They're the hardcore people. They say, no, no, he is savior and he is healer. And I get all of that, Simon, but he is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. I am filled to overflowing with this spirit's power, Simon. I can't contain the goodness of God in my heart. Look, I'm speaking in tongues and everything. I feel compelled by the Spirit to tell people about Jesus. I feel encouraged by the Spirit to tell my story. Oh, he is the baptizer. He's baptized me with power from on high. And some of us, if we were even still awake, would say, hallelujah, glory to God, for he truly has baptized you. And then there will be others that will say something like this. He is my lover. He has won my heart and stolen the whole of my life. I am in love with God, unreservedly, unashamedly. I don't care who hears about it. I don't care who denies it. I am smitten. I am overwhelmed by him. He is passionate for me and I am passionate for him. I am my beloved Simon and he is mine. And those of us who are a little bit stoic would say, that sounds a little bit personal. 
It just sounds a little bit passionate. Couldn't you just tone it down slightly? Could you maybe just back off a little bit from that kind of intimate language? Because we're British here. And we like things to happen in order. We even fall in love with a stiff upper lip. We refuse to be emotional or emotive about anything. And we'd look at that person's life and whether we understood what they were saying fully or not, we would say, I am delighted for you that you have found love. May that love in you abide and grow and flourish and may you come into all the fullness of who he is. And then there'll be others who will say, Simon, when I think of who I believe God to be, he is the father I never had. I grew up in a vacuum that was fatherless without any man to show me what it was to be truly wanted and desired or indeed brought under the auspices of his authority and his provision. God is the father I always dreamt existed. I have been searching for him in every part of my life and he came searching for me. He is a good, good father. I truly come alive when we sing the song, Pastor Simon, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's my testimony. It's my story. It's my reality. God is good and he delights in me and he is the father I have always wanted. And then there will be others and they're slightly out there and they say, no, 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 no. I know he's the savior. I know he's the healer. I know he's the baptizer. I know he's the lover. I know he's the father. But Simon, I need to tell you, I need to let you know he's the soon and coming king. My heart yearns after him. My heart longs for him. I awake every day believing this could be the day that he would come back and restore me into fullness and into blessing. You see, we can be in a crowd and lots of the crowd will tell us who Jesus is. People will stand on platforms and tell you what Jesus is like. But the revelation you carry of the nature and the heart of God is the invitation that the Father has given you to live in the blessing that God has afforded you. You cannot walk in somebody else's revelation. You can only walk in and out of the revelation that you've been given by God himself. So the church says this about Jesus and the world says that about Jesus. And you may say something else about Jesus. So how did we find out what we found out about who this glorious person called Jesus is. What about you? And I pause there tonight, not for effect, but I say this to you. What you believe about Jesus is the most important thing in this room because it will shape the way you live your life. It will cause your life to become revolutionized by that revelation. So right in the middle of a conversation where you think they would have known a little bit better about who Jesus was, where Jesus had started this glorious adventure of bringing the kingdom and standing the kingdom, there's a variety of perspectives in the room, just like there is tonight. And Peter, he stands up and he offers his conclusions. And everyone sits with bated breath because Peter was never renowned as being the most eloquent of speakers. John looks at Matthew and they think, this is going to be good. If it was a current context, people would have taken out their phones and recorded this and made sure that at some point during the course of the evening, whatever Peter had to say would be put on Facebook. Somebody would have tweeted his response. I don't know what the other versions are, but they would have all happened 
as a matter of course. Why? Because in the context of this glorious invitation to respond to the question of Jesus, the most unlikely character of all volunteers his revelation. And this is that revelation. They waited patiently to hear it. Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you can imagine, can't you, the silence that hit the room. As people just thought, what? Peter? We didn't even know you could talk like that, Peter. We didn't know you understood the deep things of God. And Jesus responds to Peter and he says this, Blessed are you, Simon Peter, for you did not get this from a Bethel podcast. You did not read this from an internet blog. This has not come through T.G. Jake's preaching. He says, blessed are you, Simon Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You see, when we pause to think of what we truly know about God, it simply comes down to this truth. That God in his infinite wisdom has decided to disclose aspects of his nature and his character to us as individuals that are perfectly shaped and formed for us to find relationship with him. Here's where the danger comes. When you try to impose your revelation on me, when you make me subscribe to what you believe to be true about Jesus, I have to deny what I have discovered to be true about Jesus. And I've been in church for 33 years, and one of the difficulties we have is we speak a talk of unity, but what we really want is uniformity. We want everybody to think the same, everyone to believe the same things. I mean, we are so keen that that happens, we keep preaching and preaching and preaching so that you will get some handle on the theology around the story of Jesus. And all of that is good, but this I want to add to it. I can only be what I can truly see. I can only be what I can truly see. When I behold him as a father, I get to live as a son. I get to live as the child that's delighted in. I get to be the boy that grew up to be a man where God's favor rested upon him. If I know him to be the healer, I get to walk out of that revelation. I get to offer that invitation to people around me because I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so when I have been healed, I have confidence, I have authority, and I have certainty that God can do the same for somebody else other than me. When I know him as my love, when he overwhelms my life with his passion. I can walk into any room and I know that his love is enough for everybody there. It's the grace upon grace of daily bread where he turns up in his goodness and people's hearts start to awaken. I can only be what I can see. I can't be what you see. I can't be what somebody else wants me to see. I have beheld him. And that invitation is important because when I have beheld him in a particular way, I have been given the power and the invitation to become like him. As I understand who he is for me and stop competing with other revelations, I start to come into this glorious revelation that God has created me uniquely and revealed himself to me specifically that I may live out of that revelation for his glory. Who do you say he is? 
the most important question you can answer or ask this side of heaven. And here's where this goes wrong for us. You see, when I hear you talk about your revelation, I want to have it. And I aspire to have it too, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what if God was very strategic in the way that he revealed himself? What if his plan was, was bespokely made and invited to you so that you could relate to him in a particular way? And here's the most glorious thought of all I will share with you tonight. How amazing would it be if we stopped trying to make everybody uniformed in our thinking and actually celebrated the unique way in which God has revealed himself to individuals? So you take your understanding of his nature and his character and you put it out there on display. And I come alongside you and I take my understanding of his nature and his character and I put it out there on display. And someone else comes along and they take their revelation of his nature and his character and they put it out on display. And here's what happens. Instead of a monochrome Jesus, a two-dimensional spirituality, what happens is this glorious tapestry of the nature and the character of God becomes the robust clarity and reality of the church and that which his two-tone becomes vibrant and spectacular. You see, I have a mission this side of heaven and that is to live out of my revelation to my fullest capacity. Paul uses this phrase and I offer it to you for consideration. He says, I run the race set before me to win the prize which is Christ and heavenward in my direction. Listen to me church, you cannot run somebody else's race. The prize will never be yours if you're in the wrong lane. God has assigned and apportioned to you. The boundaries fall for you in pleasant places. Don't be jealous of somebody else's revelation. Celebrate that revelation and honor the revelation that you've been given. And then you will start to live with ease the relationship that Jesus Christ has afforded you. It's time for the church to celebrate diversity and unity. We may see things differently. Now I'm not talking about the theology about salvation or eternal life. I'm talking about our own personal revelation of how we have come into relationship with God. For me, he will always be the God of encounter. There isn't a place I ever walk or even a day in my life where I don't know that his heart for me, because this is how it started, started with me encountering his presence. That didn't seem like a big deal to me. I wanted to be a preacher boy. I wanted to be a teacher boy. But actually, I know that I can stand in any place, on any platform, in any town, in any city. And I have been given an authority and a revelation that God will come and be with me. That's not arrogance, that's assurance. That's not stupidity, that's glory. I know that he is with me and he's for me. And I know that in any hard, difficult place, God will send me by his spirit because he knows that I've been practicing his presence for the last 34 years. As I practice it in the marketplace or the private place or the public place, God turns up and he begins to kiss people back to life and restore people's hearts. Why would you therefore envy somebody else's revelation? Celebrate with them. Thank God for what they've discovered about him. God has been intentional in his disclosure to them. We don't need to compete with one another. I pray in Jesus' name, the church will stop competing with one another. We call out for unity, but we have disparity. I'm trying to race you to the finish line. No, God will invite me by his spirit to live as he has called me to live out of the revelation that he has given. 
And Peter answers, and to everyone's surprise, he had been given bread from heaven. You see, it's not information that equips you for life, it's revelation. When you know God in a particular way, you're able to live out of that reality day by day. Someone praise God for me. Now something happens. As Peter discloses who he believes Jesus to be, Jesus discloses who Peter is called to be. You see, there is always a trade whenever we have a revelation. When God opens up our heart to see him in a particular way, alongside that and along with that comes this invitation for us to walk in that revelation for the rest of our lives. And look what Jesus says to him. Blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, now Peter's getting revelation about Peter. He had revelation about Jesus, and now Jesus is bringing a prophetic revelation to Peter about Peter's truest identity. And I tell you the truth, Peter, that on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the, the Messiah. Now let me talk you through a little bit of this if I can. When Jesus says, and I tell you that you, Peter, okay, there's been a switch of a name. You know earlier in the context he's called, calling him Simon. He's transferring Peter's thinking out of who he was into who he has now become. Anytime we have a new assignment of a name in scripture, it's because we have a new assignment on earth to accomplish. And God is always in the business of calling us who he created us to be, not what people have told us we have been. Our history has got nothing to do with our destiny. What people have said about you, it may or may not be true, but God redefines a new reality for you when you come into relationship with him. You know, some of us were liars and we've been known forever to be liars, but actually today God has made you a truth talker because he has renamed you. Some of us, we were swindlers and robbers and thieves, and we've taken everything out of everybody's life, but God has called you to be generous and to give. And in this new dispensation where he has redefined your story and your life, he has given you a mandate, not just to restore what has been taken or you've taken, but actually to give you the capacity to bring blessing to other people. When God calls you into relationship with you, he calls you by your truest name. Not who people say you are, but who he says you are begins the starting point of a whole new revolution in your life. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. Once I was lost. There's a label. People used to tell me I was terribly lost. But now I'm found. There's my new identity. I have been hunted down by the king of heaven. And he has come and rewarded my life with relationship. I once was an orphan. But now I am an heir. We were once not a people, but we now are his glorious people. Not only his people, but a royal priesthood. A holy people set apart for the purposes of God. You get to decide in Revelation whether you want to live with what people have called you or you start to move towards your new identity as someone who's been called into relationship with God. His name moved from Peter, which was one who hears, and clearly, sorry, Simon, one who hears, to Peter, which means someone solid which is ironic because later on he is a bit shaky in the whole journey. And look what Jesus says to him here. Upon this rock I will build my church. 
Now, what was Jesus referring to? Now, for many, many years, there's been a set of, of, of kind of disconnect around this between two groups of people. I don't wish to go into all of that, but I would suggest that these are the two train of thoughts. That when Jesus is speaking to Peter, he's pointing at Peter, one group would say, and saying, Peter, upon this rock, you, I will build my church. And many people would agree that that was what Jesus was trying to say. Other of us who have a reformed theology would say, no, no, though, God would never build his church on an individual. He has built his church on the reality of who Christ is. So what Jesus is saying, no, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. That's Jesus saying, I am the rock of your salvation. I would like to suggest to you a third option. That Jesus is not saying to Peter, upon you, I will build my church. Or even saying to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. The rock that Jesus is referring to is the revelation Peter had of the nature and the character of God. Now pause for a moment and think about the significance of that. Because God has built his church, and by the way, that's you and that's me, on the revelation you have of God. Amen? Your revelation has determined heaven's orchestration. You have a revelation of God. Now we know that we are all rooted and established in love. We know that Christ is the cornerstone of all things that are good, but actually, as well as that, and on a greater level than that, in the sense that God wants to work practically in our lives, God has given you a revelation. And that revelation, I believe, is a substantial thing that he has sought to build your life upon. Now, look back over the course of your life and you'll start to identify, as I often do, that it's that revelation that has been consistent throughout the course of your journey. Is there anybody here who's journeyed with Jesus longer than 10 years? God will keep repeating himself. He'll keep bringing you back to certain things because he wants to remind you of who your truest and most glorious identity is wrapped up in. Who you know him to be is who you are called to make him known as. So upon this rock I will build my church, and such is the building of the church out of Revelation that the gates of hell can do nothing about it. You see, can I pause for a moment there? My revelation, no matter what this world tells me, no matter what is thrown at me, is the one thing that has kept me over the years. And the enemy has come in, and people have tried to distort it, and people have tried to change it, but actually... The gates of hell couldn't stop what God had placed inside of me. What you carry has a power and authority and a dominion over the demonic realm. It has a power and authority over that which is seen and that which is unseen. Can someone say amen to that? This is not just some ad hoc invitation. This is bespoke and specific to you that you would carry a particular revelation of the nature of God. Let me give you a quick example of that. Time is flying. There is a friend of mine and he carries a revelation of joy. His name is Alan Scott. He has been the pastor of a very large church, grew out of nothing really in Northern Ireland to over three and a half thousand people. He's now heading up the Vineyard Church in Anaheim, California. He and his wife are really suffering for Jesus in Orange County, California. God bless him in his suffering. He's a missionary. And he has a strange background. Let me tell you his background. He comes from inner city Glasgow, but he talks with a Glaswegian stroke Northern Irish accent. So you can imagine how the Californians are understanding him over there in Orange County. As I listen to him, I hear his twang and I think, gosh, Lord, you've got a great sense of humor. But you know, when I was at Bible college with Alan, 
we were invited to go and speak in the church together. There was a few of us going on these little kind of training exploits. And um, we went to this church. And guess where we went? We went to Northern Ireland. Now, if you've ever been to Northern Ireland, back then there was a divide between the Catholics and the Protestants. Okay, and so we went with fear and trepidation because we thought we would be blown up. Guess the church that we were asked to go to was on the Shankill Road, right in the middle of the Troubles, as they were known in those days. And I turn up and I sound more English than I do Irish, and no one can understand what Alan is saying because he's from inner city Glasgow. There was a couple of others of us there, and we're asked to come and minister in this church. Now, in that context, preaching and teaching and the word, the word, the word of God is very, very important. You've got to speak the word of God, you know. And so Alan gets up to speak. It's his turn over the weekend. We've had turns. And it's all about learning and all of that. And Alan gets up and, you know, everyone's waiting for the word. We're all waiting for the word of God. And uh, somebody shouts from the back because there's a little pause. Preach it, brother. Preach it. Now, I look at Alan, and I can see that Alan's not going to say anything because Alan is now overwhelmed by joy. So he just stands. He's about six foot three, in, like, a, like a strip of wind. <laughs> I don't know what happened to me, but he's still a strip of wind, and I'm not. That's all I'm saying. And he, he stands, and he starts shrugging his shoulders, laughing. And you can see the people of the Word are really upset and when he sees their faces, he just laughs even more. And his shoulders are really going. And he starts, he starts making this, just when it gets to a really bad pitch where people of the word are really upset, okay, he starts chuckling. <laughs> I'm dying a thousand deaths inside. I'm thinking, Alan, what are you doing, man? We're going to be kicked out of here. These people are people of the word. And we're going to be in trouble because all you've done is stood in a platform and start laughing. You're just laughing. They're going to think there's something wrong with you. And you could tell that that's exactly what they thought. They think, gosh, they've sent us a Bible college student that's mentally ill. Because he just stood there. <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't even a nice laugh. You know how some people have nice laughs? It was one of those awkward kind of deputy dog kind of, <laughs> kind of laugh. And, and it felt like a week. It just felt like a week. This few moments just felt like a week. And then suddenly this lady at the back started to laugh and somebody at the front started to laugh. And at first we all thought they were just laughing because Alan's laugh was quite goofy. But actually the spirit of joy came into that environment and everybody in that room, including the very, very stoic leader of that church, began to titter for Jesus' sake. They began to laugh. Now you might think, well, how can that possibly represent God? Well, here's how I think it does. God is a joyous God. If you didn't get the memo, someone should tell you. Okay, if you didn't recognize that, he's a joyous God. And God sent Alan in the midst of a stoic people who were so in many ways wanting the truth, but the truth evaded them because the truth was a set of principles, not the reality of the presence of the fullness of God. You see, God will take what you know to be true about him and sometimes he will place you in contexts that look alien to that being even valuable or precious. And he will open up your revelation of him. And many people will come to experience his goodness. Aren't you grateful for that which the Lord has given you? Aren't you thankful for the revelation you have of him? Aren't you celebrating that which God has afforded you? 
to explore the possibilities of that revelation and to allow others to come into connection with that. So Peter gets a new name, which is a new identity. When revelation comes to us, we have a new identity. Our eyes see things differently. We have a different perspective on reality. God opens up possibility to us through revelation. And of course, others in the room may not get it. They may not understand it. They may not even want it. But suddenly the world seems a different place. And it's revelation that God uses to build his church. He builds your life personally and he builds others' lives through you. And he builds for himself a reputation in and through your life that begins to transform other people's lives. So he gets a new identity. He gets a new authority. You see, with revelation comes an authority. God has mandated that revelation leads to heaven's manifestation. So there has to be an authority. So he gets a new identity. He gets a new authority. And then he gets a new invitation from God to live gloriously. Now, you know further on in the scriptures that Jesus speaks to Peter about Peter's mandate here on the earth. He says, you have been a fisher of fish, but I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Out of this, this moment in Peter's life, everything begins to shift. Everything begins to change for him. New identity, a new authority, and a new destiny become available to him. Now, if you turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 2, you'll see where that identity starts to become a reality. And there's a gap between this moment of revelation and indeed the manifestation of God's purposes in his life. In Acts chapter 2, you see that the people are gathered together in the upper room. There's been a lot of conflict, a lot of anarchy, a lot of adversity against the church. And you know the story. When Peter was put on the spot, in spite of being given this revelation, he denied even knowing Jesus. He said, I had nothing to do with that man. And he's heartbroken that in spite of God's invitation and indeed God's opening up for him a new way of living. He hasn't stepped into that. And so on the day of Pentecost, something happens. Does anyone remember what happens? They're all together in one accord in the upper room, and there comes a sound like the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and the whole room is shaken with the power of the Holy Spirit. And they began to appear on people's heads, tongues of fire, and people began to speak in heavenly languages. Such was the fullness of the Spirit's power that they spill out onto the streets of Jerusalem. And there's a festival taking place at that particular time. And people who are coming to and from the temple begin to recognize that these people are speaking in their native tongues. And right in the middle of it all, Peter, who put his hand in the air and everybody wanted to Facebook it, actually starts to step towards that which God had placed in his life to do. He stands in a marketplace of hostility and he talks about the purposes and the plans and the glory of God. He speaks to the very people that were against what Christ was about. And he speaks with boldness and he speaks with confidence. Why? Because he has a new identity, he has a new authority, and he has a new destiny. He moves out of Simon and he steps into Peter. He moves out of having a cultural context for his revelation of Jesus. And he starts to stand in the revelation he's been given by God himself. And he declares the wonders of God throughout the history of Israel. And that day, a man who was a lowly, ordinary fisherman, who everyone thought had nothing good to say about anything, steps into the revelation and the invitation that God had placed on his life. And 3,000 men, not counting women and children, are brought in and caught up in the kingdom of God on that day. 
But it all starts with a simple question. The most important question we need to answer this side of heaven, and that is, who do you say Jesus is? For who you know him to be is indeed the key that unlocks for you your newest identity, your glorious heavenly authority, and will lead you through victory into the destiny that God has indeed afforded you. Without that revelation, we can never stand in the place of heaven's manifestation because we will live with uncertainty about our place in the purposes of God. For many, many years, I have questioned God's wisdom in calling me into the ministry. And can I just say about that, this is not something or has ever been something I ever felt I would ever do with my life. But while I'm minding my own business, the Lord Jesus comes to me with his business and he brings a revelation. And his revelation to me all those years ago, I fought with consistently for about 10 years until I submitted to the reality of what God had began to place in me. I knew him to be the God of love and I knew that he had compassion on people and I knew that he had power to change lives. I had seen him do that for me. And yet I had flirted and disconnected and flirted and come back consistently to church, finding it an awkward liaison to find my place in the midst of people who seemed to live very perfect lives because my life was inconsistent as far as healing was concerned. I loved him and then some days I didn't understand him. I wanted him most of the time, but I didn't really want the people he hung out with. And the reality of that was my fight with God, submitting to the revelation I had of God. You see, God told me at the beginning, he invited me at the beginning to understand and to behold him in a particular way. And there has never, as I've said earlier, been any time in my life since that beholding moment where God has not utilized what he has shown me to affect other people for his glory. I didn't want to be a minister, but you see, the truth is there is but one minister amongst us, and that is the Holy Spirit who comes and brings revelation and invites us into the story of God so that God can give us a new identity. The old has gone and the new has come. Give us a new authority as we walk with him in victory in the story and the revelation of that which he has given us, keeping to our course, not allowing ourselves to be affected by what other people think or don't think, but trusting what the Lord has begun in us, he will complete and understanding this, that with that new identity comes a new authority, but there is a new destiny that comes from that revelation that leads us and guides us and takes us to places where we would never be able to get ourselves. Who do you say he is? The most important question.